Hi, I'm Ryan McGranigan, an aerospace engineer, data scientist, and all-around art, design, engineering, and science enthusiast. And you're listening to Origins, the show where we talk with thought leaders across eclectic areas of society about their origin stories and trajectories. The purpose is to highlight these thought leaders across different landscapes, to learn about the pivotal moments in their lives and to illustrate the ways of living that help you actionably re-examine your own assumptions and patterns. To provide ideas and stories to give you pause, bring you excitement, and be origins of new trajectories. Michael Hochberg is Distinguished Research Director with the Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique, the French National Centre for Scientific Research, and based at the University of Montpellier in France. His research has, for many years, spanned fields from ecology to epidemiology to biodiversity to innovation to the communication of science and touches every scale imaginable, from cells to societies. The insight and wisdom he has built up from a career spent in these liminal spaces is exhilarating and has placed him at the frontier of scientific inquiry that centers the in-between spaces, such as complexity science. As part of that pursuit, Michael enjoys associate positions at the Santa Fe Institute and at the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse. He uses mathematical models and experiments to unravel complex ecological interactions, social and cultural dynamics, and pathways of innovation and their evolution. His work is profoundly important to our world as we navigate global health and ecological crises and entertain an insatiable curiosity for invention and innovation. Michael is the author of two books, Aspects of the Genesis and Maintenance of Biological Diversity and An Editor's Guide to Writing and Publishing Science. Based on his decade-long experience founding and serving as editor-in-chief for the journal Ecology Letters. He is currently section head of population ecology at the faculty of 1000 and director of the French Darwinian Evolution of Cancer Consortium. He received his BSc in Bioresource Sciences at the University of California, Berkeley in 1982, MSc in Entomological Sciences in 1985, and a PhD in Pure and Applied Biology at the University of London in 1989. He was then a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Population Biology at Imperial College. Michael, it's a pleasure to have you on Origins, and thank you for sharing your time with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So I often start the show, whether I'm talking to a physicist or a poet, by asking about the spiritual background of a guest's childhood, because I think it starts to get at the questions they've been following, the ones that have lodged in them and started to shape them. So I'm curious how you would begin to think about the spiritual or even religious background of your life and some of the questions that it might have given you. My earliest memories of what brought me to where I am today is uh, insatiable curiosity from the youngest age. And when I talked to colleagues about when they decided they wanted to be a scientist, um, answers are variable, but usually in one's teens or 20s kind of emerges a bit later in life when studies are completing. Um, but I can trace this back to when I was about six or seven years old, where I wanted to be either an inventor or or a magician and had this curiosity curiosity about everything that was life outside and was 
constantly outside with a shovel dig digging in the dirt and uh, looking at insects and bird watching and so forth. And gradually through my childhood, that idea of, of being a magician or an inventor turns out to be something that I find essential in what it is to be a scientist. And that is this you know, somewhat unpredictable um, outcomes of how we actually are able to increase our understanding of the natural world. So those are sort of the origins of where I came from and being a scientist. I've never really wavered, but actually becoming a scientist uh, had a very winding path and it was certainly not a given and something we can talk about. Um, getting to my more spiritual background, the only comment I, I really have is that I grew up in Southern California, in the suburbs of Los Angeles and San Fernando Valley. And my parents, as well as neighbors, were mostly working class. So in order to have access to information, um, it was really in those days, in 1960s and 1970s, through going to the library or simply trying to go out and figure out things for oneself. Um, kind of going around looking looking around in nature uh, in one's backyard digging and and observing and trying to figure out what was going on. So I really had very little mentorship until I got into the university system. And it was because of that, I think just because of this, you know, do-it-yourself background that I was perhaps a bit more uh, exploratory and more willing to take risks because I didn't have any guidance in terms of what kind of scientist I should be. It was really up to me to, to discover that. And really through it, through interactions with key people uh, at the university that, that led me into the path that I, I eventually took. It's interesting because I, I agree with you that uh, this inventing and magic kind of side of things does have an essence in science and it's inherently about living in questions and embracing mystery. And I think that your work embodies that. And I think it gives us a way into your scientific research. I think that began with biology and ecology. And I'm curious about what it was that took these childhood passions, animated you to become a student of those sciences and, and become a science. And perhaps it was mentors, as you mentioned, when you got to university, uh, you began to have some stronger mentorship. For me, it wasn't a given. And it turns out, so I went to UCLA as an undergrad, went there and went into the pre-med program. My view, naive, very, very naive view at the time, this is, I'm 17 years old, was that science and medicine are kind of the same thing. So that there could be, some, there is science in medicine, of course, and being a pre-med would enable me to do scientific research. So that seemed uh, the most reasonable path to take, which would be be a pre-med, hopefully get into med school, and in being a doctor, uh, could get into the scientific research angle of medicine. In the first quarter, I went from being basically a straight A student in high school to a straight C student. 
and quickly realized only a few weeks into uh, my first quarter that uh, medicine might not work out because of the competition to get into medical school. Uh, But I kept with it. Things didn't change much. I just found myself um, in in an environment which wasn't me and the find myself in amphitheaters with 100 more students, uh, intense competition for grades amongst pre-med students and so forth, and not really enjoying it. And in my sophomore year, decided either I'm going to drop out of this because I really don't like it, or I'm going to ask for a transfer. And I didn't ask my parents about this. I didn't tell them either option. I just pretended that everything was okay. And they were very uh, understanding, relaxed about my grades. That was not really a problem. And one day I wandered into the admin office at UCLA and asked for a transfer to go to Berkeley. And a couple of months later was accepted. It was, was very fortunate because in the UC system at the time, and I suspect it's still like this, once one is in the system and able to cope, that uh, under some circumstances, you can ask for a transfer. And so mine was accepted. And so I found myself as a junior moving up to the Bay Area, to Berkeley, and starting anew as a student there. And everything changed, completely changed. And it changed for a very strange reason, unexpected. And that is on day one at Berkeley, I had to see a counselor who would who reviewed my transcripts, uh, wanted to know what kind of major I wanted to do at Berkeley, what kind of minor. And given that Berkeley did not have a medical school, it was actually at UC, UC San Francisco, but still a different campus technically. I suppose that would be a biology major. And the counselor was looking at my transcripts and said, look, you're in the College of Life Sciences here at Berkeley. Uh, you came from the same college at UCLA. And do you realize that you have to do one year of foreign language to get your bachelor's degree. And so sitting there, I'm not sure if I slumped in my chair or sat up straight, but my head started spinning because I've totally forgotten about this. I thought if I don't take it naively, that perhaps it won't matter. And if my grades are okay, and I take the rest of the courses that um, I can negotiate a bachelor's degree, but Sure enough, the counselor said, no way, you cannot get out of this requirement. And these are the key few seconds. And the few seconds that I sat there staring in in midair, speechless of, of, do I just get up and say thank you and go out of this counselor's office? He looked at me and said, you know, there is an option. If you really don't want to do a foreign language, if you transfer, into another college at Berkeley, in this case, natural resources, he said, they will let you do computer science as a foreign language. And and in a sense, computer science is sort of foreign language. So to me, this was win-win because I was, as a a teenager, very much into this kind of early days of computers and interactions between students and computers. It was a few years before PCs actually came out. But the idea of doing uh, computer programming was perfect. So totally on a whim, I transferred 
from life sciences and natural resources, not realizing that virtually the whole curriculum would change. And so instead of taking courses in my major like uh, ecology and physiology and so forth, biochemistry, I'd be taking entomology, soil science, plant pathology, uh, conservation sciences, uh, political science. I found myself in this new college taking these new courses and this took me on an unexpected trajectory in meeting both students and professors that were to change what my future would become. And specifically, it was in taking in my first quarter as a junior at Berkeley, taking entomology, going into this course, thinking entomology, that means I knew a little bit about insects, but to me, insects were butterflies, beetles, bees, a few major taxa. But seeing in this entomology course, the incredible diversity of, of insect behaviors, insect uh, um, physiology um, aspects, uh, both fundamental entomology and applied entomology really turned me on. And I asked the professor, and his name was Hal Daly, uh, if he could recommend uh, a professor in the entomology department at Berkeley with whom I could volunteer and do some research. And that's really how things took off. And I was taken under the wing of several professors in the forest entomology department who let me get involved in, in their projects as a field hand, um, but also did my fourth year project on entomology, which actually turned out to be my first scientific publication. So I was on my way to integrating insects and ecology into what I want to do as a postgraduate student. And that led to eventually where I am today. Wow. It's incredible. And, and, and exactly what we try to, to zero in on in this show is, is those are those critical moments, those pivotal moments that changed the whole trajectory and, and the way that we witness them kind of in hindsight. And so those seconds when, when you kind of changed your life based on this um, meeting with the guidance counselor is, is remarkable. I think it brings us to something that I'm very interested to cover with you. You went from entomology to some postgraduate work and some PhD work in pure and applied biology. And your work in general, that time and, and beyond has covered such breadth. You've authored articles from Ecology Drives the Worldwide Distribution of Human Diseases to an Ecosystem Framework for Understanding and Treating Disease, and then to Innovation, an Emerging Focus from Cells to Societies. And so I'm curious how you would begin to describe your science. Right, so that's a good question. This is something that's very important, something actually that I treat in my book on writing and publishing papers is to, to always start focused, focus on something, go into depth, and through interactions that one has and reading and so forth, grab, very gradually branch out. One doesn't want to do that too quickly and branch out too much and disperse into too many different topics. 
But there's this the problem of the, the temptation when you're approached by a colleague saying, would you like to get involved in this new project I'm starting based upon what you've done on the ecology of this? We think that you could transfer it and apply it to this other related topic. So many of these branching points in my career have emerged that way at a conference, uh, just having drinks with with colleagues and some kind of new um, results would come up and I'd make a comment on the results and something that would be complementary to what the person presenting the results was actually doing. They would, they would say, hey, look, um, how would you like to talk about this more and get involved? And so some of those projects come and go. So they, there'll be one paper that comes out and I would move on and vice versa. Sometimes when other researchers from other disciplines work with me, it's a one-off kind of deal and they move on. So the way I've, I've viewed research throughout my career is that there are three, for me, three or four core ideas or areas that I've I've maintained throughout and occasionally with other colleagues will I wouldn't call this dabble but get involved and and give my expertise the missing pieces to other studies and see where that could could take me. And if something really interesting emerges that looks like it could last, then follow it through. But this will take that perhaps take our conversation into issues about um, productivity and publishing and what that means at a larger scale of the scientific community. But what I'm always what I always think is that the follow-ups for these interesting studies have to really be very, very promising and kind of make their case with me in my own research program to fit in because if I'm taking the 12 or so so hours a day and partitioning it between two or three projects, usually in blocks of time, if I introduce something new, it means that something else is going to probably have to be sacrificed to some extent. So I'm really always conscious of not imagining that I could put in 150% just because there are these two 25% chunks um, that I think would be really interesting. So I, I do try as best I can. And I would say that most of my colleagues are the same um, to weigh the pros and cons of a project before saying yes and getting involved. So I was trained as a population ecologist and the idea of, of Evolution was interesting, but really I viewed this during my PhD and postdoc as being something fairly foreign to what I was doing. These were papers I would read, but I would never imagine myself doing evolutionary biology. And it was in, I actually distinctly remember the conversation that converted me. This was in 1992 or 1993 with a colleague in Paris where uh, I was based who wanted to discuss a paper that I had recently published with colleagues in science. He said, look, this is a really interesting paper on refuges and parasite diversity. Why don't you develop a mathematical model to look at how these refuges would evolve? 
And my my knee jerk reaction was, uh, that's not me. I'm not going to do it. Perhaps someone else will. But the that idea stuck with me. And within a year, I found myself developing mathematical models, evolutionary models to understand refuge, what we call refuge evolution in host parasite interactions. And one thing led to another, and the the richness of of the evolutionary perspective on explaining certain facets of the natural world really came home for me. And slowly over the maybe five or 10 following years came to dominate what I did in research. There was always an ecology aspect to it. And for me, ecology is the interactions between individuals, between populations, and between biology and the environment. So it kind of, the key word there is interaction. And so that's always been a part of my research, but the, the evolutionary question of how things become, what they become and how they change really uh, struck, home and struck home with me. And so that was kind of like the, the second arrow in my quiver, so to speak. And slowly in the 1990s and knots from, I'd always worked on host parasite interactions. And one day I found that, how about simplifying things? And rather than looking at parasitism between a host and a parasite population, look at parasitism within populations. So ideas of social parasitism. And that can be extended to thinking about parasitism or what we could sometimes call cheating or defection, well, rather, cheating rather, that it's the flip side of cooperation. And I got into a, I said got into, got very interested in involvement in a series of studies on the evolution of cooperation and cheating in single species populations, viewing this analogously to mutualism between species or parasitism between species. And my original thought in getting into this was this, this is going to be simpler. We're, we're boiling down interspecific interactions to a single species and different subpopulations within that, uh, that species. But as it turned out, uh, there was considerable richness in that too. So that richness was propelled me into a series of studies to this day, actually, on cheating and cooperation in single species populations. Uh, so that's really kind of the third quiver, sorry, the third arrow in my quiver. It's an incredible pathway through these different disciplines that some people might consider disparate, but you weave together in, in these really interesting ways. And I wanna put a pen in a few things because we are gonna come back to those scientific writing or just writing in general and publishing, because it's really important. And then I also want to put a pen in this host parasite interactions, because I think it does go under a lot of the work that you've done. And I want to go back to this moment where you were introduced to this new idea and it kind of over the night, you mentioned over the next year, kind of gradually being changed toward it. 
And I'd like to know, you seem like a particularly reflective person. I'm curious what that felt like when you got introduced to this idea and you started to realize that you were going to change what you were doing to reflect it. And I think it's particularly interesting in your case because you have so many interests and so many capabilities that the possibilities can grow and become debilitating because there's just so many of them. How did you allow this to, to kind of become a focus of yours or what did it feel like as this was becoming more important to you? Well, in my case, it's usually not kind of a flash of, of anything like an epiphany or anything like that, very rarely in any case. It's more, here's something interesting, let's explore it. And it's after several papers and perhaps several years of working on it and looking back saying, wow, thinking about these moments when they took off, there was very rarely something special that went off beyond thinking, this is interesting. Let's push this a little bit further and seeing what can happen with it. But when thinking back, for example, my work on host parasite interactions that stemmed from my master's thesis in entomology, and I was working on physiological, physiological development in uh, P. aphids, in aphids, and in insect species, in insects in general, uh, their development is driven in part by temperature. It's driven by nutrition as well, but in, in large part by temperature. And so if you were to lower the temperature in an aphid population to about 10 degrees centigrade, they basically sit there and do, do very little physiologically. And it's as if their, their clock can be measured in terms of temperature. So you can speed up their clock by raising temperature and beyond a certain temperature, beyond about 30 degrees Celsius, they, they shut down and roughly 35 degrees Celsius for any extended period of time, they die. So that was my master's thesis, developing models and collecting data to predict development as, uh, as a function of temperature in these P aphids. But in order to survive as a master's student, um, I had to support myself. I had no grant and applied for what was called a research assistantship and I got that. It was a half-time job and my job was in the same research group. And my job was to collect the P aphids, but for someone else's project, for a postdoc's project. And this postdoc was interested in interactions between uh, fungal pathogens and these P aphids in the field. So I would go out with, with a sweep net, collect these aphids, bring them back into the lab, put them into uh, tubes, and rear them out and see when and how many of these things came down with these fungal pathogens. So that was my first inter exposure to anything parasitic. And I kept that in mind, it never became part of my master's thesis, but in applying for the PhD program and getting accepted to Imperial College, the professor who accepted me was interested in offering a project on host parasite interactions. So I did have a choice here. I could have uh, searched for another professor in the same department who was working on something different, some kind of ecological project, perhaps applied ecology. 
because I was interested in agriculture at the time. But the idea of host-parasite interactions really interested me, probably based on this exposure to the, these fungal pathogens and how marvelous they were, especially under the microscope, because when these aphids die, are dying actually, the fungus produces hyphae that project from the bottom of the aphid into the leaf and peg the aphid to the leaf. It then sprouts um, sporulating stems from the aphid and these spores shoot off into the environment and fall down and any unlucky aphid that happens to get hit by one of these spores potentially could get infected. So not only was I doing these fairly routine observations of when these aphids were coming down with the, the infection and invariably dying, uh, but also this marvelous behavior of the parasite and how it was able to ensure its transmission to other hosts. So, so this idea of host-parasite interactions, of transmission, of virulence started to get into into me and into what I was interested in and became really a pivotal part of my PhD thesis, which combined both mathematical models and field experiments and laboratory experiences as well on host-parasite interactions. And you're at this time in London, and you've intimated to me that there's an interesting story about how you ended up in France, which, which is where you've been for the past three decades. Yes. What... Where did that begin? Well, it actually began in that counselor's office in trying to avoid the foreign language requirement and getting into this new college. And it was there that in doing my master's project that I met my wife-to-be in 1983, and she was French. <laughs> and you can imagine what, what happened next. Right. So I'm in France now. I'm speaking French, very ironically, because I avoid the foreign language requirement at Berkeley. Yes, there's actually much more to this. There's there are different layers. So when I think about it, the reason that she was at Berkeley and she was visiting a professor and volunteering to do secretarial work in our department is because this professor was visiting France and looking for parasites to introduce into the United States to control insect pests. And he took a wrong turn near Lyon and it ended up in this little village and found the right species of tree, one of the host trees of this pest, and started climbing up in the tree, uh, looking for the aphids turned out to be aphids as well, so aphid pests, to collect and hopefully rear out these parasites of these aphids. And the father of my wife-to-be happened to be wandering around in the park that day, saw this 50-year-old, rather heavy-set gentleman climbing in the trees and asked him what he was doing. He spoke very little French, so, and my father-in-law-to-be, spoke absolutely no English, and waved to him to come to his house for a coffee and to, to just talk talk about you know, what he was doing in the trees. And that's how my wife met this professor, and the professor suggested, hey, you should come out to Berkeley to see the Bay Area and see the United States. 
And so another improbable happening brought her to the U.S. And then obviously maybe things became more predictable once I was there and we met at Berkeley. But the, the actual, there were key moments, unpredictable moments that led to the chain of events. When it happens, one doesn't realize what it will actually lead to. I think that's the key thing, kind of going back to your question. There was no epiphany or anything, no realization that this was going to really change my life because things just takes one onto a different road, different trajectory, and that kind of branches off into other things and takes one somewhere else further down the road. Improbable events and completely absurd. I mean, going back to this insatiable curiosity of scientists, there's this uh, this older lost scientist in some small fringe town decides to to take the opportunity to, to climb in some trees and do some research that that's, that's yes. an absurd image in my mind and, and, and absolutely amazing. Well, the thing is he would have done it somewhere, but just where he did it having to lead to this trajectory in people's lives. Right. It's, and then as you're in France, you start to do this research. And I, I think you've mentioned there's kind of an ecological framework underpinning for this and, and, it, and it reaches in, in multiple directions, but two that are very interesting are, your study of disease and, and also your study of social interactions. And I'm not sure if this is going to lead anywhere, but I, but I have to ask, because I think it's, it may lead us into your, how social interactions and how society factors into the way that you see the world and the way that you do your science. And that, that's how you tried to understand Chinchuro culture, a culture that existed in the Chilean Atacama desert between roughly 7,000 and 1,000 BC. You wrote that this culture was a prime example of the evolution of social complexity in the division of labor. I'd love for you to unpack that for us and, and maybe take us to that point in your, in your trajectory. Yes. So this, another improbable um, trajectory, um, it did lead to much more work on innovation. So that is my, my introduction to the world of innovations that was in the late 1990, well, actually the late knots, uh, 2008-2009, with uh, my friend and colleague, Pablo Marquette, who's a professor in Santiago, Chile. And to get to this, I'll get to the Chinchero study in just a second, but to get there, we have to rewind back to 1998. And I was invited, I received an email, or maybe a letter, invitation, to give a series of seminars and visit different universities in Chile. So who would say no to that? So I said yes, and met uh, a cohort, my same cohort, same approximate ages of Chilean ecologists and parasitologists at the annual biology meeting in Santiago. Actually, it was in Pucón, in the Pucón, uh, in the Lake District, uh, south of Santiago. And hit it off with several of them um, and continued discussions and was invited out again in 1999 to try to develop projects, uh, which didn't work out, but kept in contact. And through uh, 2000, 2001, 2002, was able to develop a more specific project with Pablo Marquette. And 
take that into the realm of innovations. And the interesting thing there, this is kind of different from what I usually do. Usually when a project's developed, I will take on something that someone else is already doing or they'll do the same. So they'll integrate into my research or vice versa. And here we were having so much fun discussing science and hanging out at the, these two years, 1998, 1999, that Pablo suggested, look, there's something that I don't work on, but my wife works on, and she's based in Arica uh, in the Atacama Desert. And that's on these Chinchero mummies. And perhaps we can develop a project around one of the interesting observations about what has become to be called the Chinchero culture. And that is the practice by this culture between approximately 5,000 and 2,000 BC and what is referred to as artificial mummification. And so what Pablo suggested is, look, we can look at some data, develop a mathematical model, which is what, what my contribution turned out to be to this paper in 2012, and explore how the environment and the influence of the environment on the social interactions in these peoples might have influenced uh, this funerary practice, which is regarded as a cultural innovation. So what little is known about the Chinchuros comes from finding these mummies and dating them and, and looking at how the mummies are actually prepared. And for about 2000 years, or at least 2000 years at least, because what we know is limited to what is actually found in the desert is that the, the first couple of millennia, the mummies that are known were are referred to as natural mummies. That is people that died in the desert. So, so the, just to take a look at the ecology, these people lived on the coastline. The interior Atacama Desert was too harsh uh, for life. It's even difficult to find bacteria in the, in, in the desert sand. So it's very, very hostile environment um, on a scale of millimeters at most of rainfall per year. And so what these peoples needed was access to food and access to fresh water. And access to fresh water meant being close to aquifers. So, so basically runoffs from the Andes that would would go underground and then well up in, in the form of streams or uh, springs. And so when we find these mummies, it's typically by what were aquifers thousands of years ago. And so for the, what one notices when sampling these mummies is in the first couple of millennia, those that are preserved in the desert are basically beef jerky. Right, so one dies in the desert. Um, if the person is not for some reason thrown into the ocean, then they'll dry up and become naturally mummified. And at sites near Arica that I was able to visit, uh, there were layer upon layer of these mummies uh, buried on top of one another, often aligned in alignments, presumably uh, clans or families. Um, children are mummified, infants were mummified, there are examples of fetuses being mummified, 
um, both males and females being mummified, um, basically across age classes in these cultures. And for some reason, this is what led to our study in about four to 5,000 BC, there was a transition that corresponded to increased rainfall in the, in the region that lasted for about two, two to 3,000 years. And this increased rainfall, according to our hypothesis, permitted increased access to, to hunting, to mostly um, sea lions, um, mollusks, and fish, but also increased water supply. So larger populations and, and higher probabilities that ideas and novelties in these cultures would emerge and perhaps transfer something about the interactions between these peoples um, and result in some kind of innovation. Now, what's interesting here is that they're living in the desert on the coastline. It's only them and the sand and the, and the water, pretty much, and rocks. So there's not much in this hostile environment, except for the fact that they would have been surrounded by these, these dead ancestors. But our hypothesis is that through the accumulation of these mummies in the immediate surrounding environment, they became part of the social environment of the, the living chincheros. And that it was through inventions and possibly the attempts to keep these mummies from putrefying due to the increased rainfall and presumably humidity and therefore rotting of, of the carcasses that they started to eviscerate these mummies, but also create, cover them, cover their faces with masks and, and remove uh, their headdress and then put it back, you know, replace it with, with a, a facial mask that would be painted, uh, typically red or black. So this became a great example of how a novelty emerged and then was complexified and diversified as almost like a clade of species. So what's known over the three to 4,000 years of what's called artificial mummification in the chinchuros is more or less a series. It's quite a bit of overlap and they did inhabit quite a, uh, a distance from Southern Peru and into Chile along the coastline of the red, the black, the mixed, the corded, the mud-coated, the bandaged mummies. So these different examples typically find with what few samples of these we have in the um, museum in, in Arica, more or less characteristic time periods. But then in about 2000 BC, the Chinchero stopped artificially mummifying, and we find a period of about 500 years of natural mummification again. So they go from natural to artificial and back to natural. And this period of artificial corresponds almost to the T, to, to this period of increased rainfall. So in about 1000 to 1500 BC, 
um, the level of precipitation uh, went back down to the pre-artificial mummification levels. And we think it's in part because of that, that these populations might have dwindled and that this innovation was lost. You can start to see parallels in this story about how the environment, space, environmental conditions influence the evolution of social behaviors to our own society, of course. And I think it does give you a new sensibility for that. And so I, I thank you for sharing that example. I think one thing that's very interesting about this, and we won't have time to get into too much detail about this, but I will link to your, your papers and your fantastic writing about this uh, in the show notes, but this sparked a longer term interest for you in the processes by which novelty and innovation emerge. And you've said about innovation, I think this is uh, this is very interesting for for our present moment in society right now that that it is moving to an adjacent space. What essence of innovation does that capture? Why is it important right now? Yeah. So the well, the idea there's the idea of the adjacent possible that was introduced uh, in the early '90s by Stuart Kaufman, and that's the kind of essential to the idea of innovation. That is that innovations cannot be predicted beforehand, or they can be predicted. If you have enough people making predictions, certainly you can go back and say, so-and-so predicted this would, would, would emerge. So perhaps there are people that predicted Amazon or something like Amazon, but there was no way to evaluate at the time, yes, this will be successful and this will take off. Why is it that the recombination between a bookseller and the internet would then diversify into such a dominant entity or entities really, um, and create a whole ecosystem um, around it and influence other ecosystems. So influencing through their dominance, um, other businesses that are either suppliers or businesses that they put out of business. Uh, so bookstores in particular. So the, the ideas, in especially in my work with Pablo, but also with uh, Andreas Wagner and Rob Boyd in a special issue that we co-edited in 2017 in the Philosophical Transactions, is that innovations in technology and in culture and in biology do have many things in common. The first one is this unpredictability. And the idea going back to basic ideas of evolution of um, we can't really predict ahead of time most forms of evolution based upon mutation just because the mutations that emerge that have tend to have a, a certain level of randomness. So we just don't know the variants they're going to emerge and then what their success will be once they do once they do emerge. Will the emergence spread and diversify? What will happen? So that's sort of the first part of the, the idea of mutation in biology, of invention in technology, which are have real parallels. So invention in technology doesn't necessarily lead to innovation. And many, if not the majority of patents that, that are filed um, never really lead to anything. They're novelties, they're inventions. Um, but they don't necessarily contribute to anything uh, in terms of, of technology. There are also some that at the time didn't seem to be important, but are then noticed and integrated and become part of something at the future. So it's, there's this supply 
of technological invention that only becomes part of the real technology once it's recombined in some respect. And I usually cite examples of this in terms of, for example, cell phone technology, how the first cell phones actually, if one goes back to 1970s and 80s, and I remember this distinctly because my mother had an emergency cell phone, a satellite phone in her trunk of her car, which must have weighed like five or five kilos. It was gigantic. It was something you would not want to use in case, unless it was an emergency. And just remembering my first cell phones in the 1990s, they were heavy, bulky things that one didn't really want to carry around in one's pocket. It was something you would put into your backpack and weren't particularly a pleasure to use except perhaps to show friends that you had a cell phone. And through time, the as we know now and will go on into the future, that cell phone has taken other technologies and recombined them with the, the existing cell phone designs and had to modify those designs. So this is, this is very key. In order to create something that would be called a new innovative phone, if we want to call it innovative, let's say with, with a camera, that the basic technology of the camera has to exist. It has to be modifiable to fit and be integrated into the circuitry of the phone and the existing phone circuitry also will have to be um, adapted to integrate the camera. So this is something that kind of traverses the idea of innovations emerging from novelties. And that is it's not just simply putting two things together and you have something else. There'll be some kind of usually mutual modifications and adaptations that will bring them together and become sufficiently productive so that they can survive and diffuse and diffuse into, into a population. So thinking about um, the idea of technological innovations, there's this idea that beyond roughly 15% of uptake of something new, that it's that innovation is likely to be on its way, pre-innovation, on its way to spread and potentially become something really important and, and innovative. And others just simply dwindle and never become much of much of anything. This kind of brings back environment. That is when a, a possible innovation is emerging, it needs to be in the right kind of environment to actually emerge. And the example that I like to quote is this, refrigeration system, actually a pump that was patented by Albert Einstein Einstein and Leo Seilard in the late 1920s, early 30s, and never took off for different reasons. One is that it made much too much noise to be integrated into refrigeration systems at the time, but also because of the war and because of Nazi Germany and Einstein and Seilard both fleeing uh, their countries. So the, the project was, was uh, dropped in part for both of those reasons. I love that you relate innovation in a capacious manner to not just ecology, how organisms or species may adapt, uh, but also to society and kind of the cultural aspects of that as well. 
And it brings me to something that I'm very interested to talk with you about, uh, which is kind of the innovation in generating new knowledge that benefits society. And, and that's much of the scientific enterprise's focus, which is to generate new knowledge for the flourishing of society. And you wrote a recent blog post about the rate of scientific publication, how you know one of the primary ways that science is, is disseminated to the public and for this insight to enter into kind of the knowledge commons that can be used by society. And I believe that, that that's kind of a, a, a form of innovation in and of itself. Um, but you wrote this piece about the unsustainable and, and even damaging proliferation in the number of journal articles. But at a deeper level, I think it's about something that's very personally felt across society. And, and that's this hedonic treadmill that we all feel that we are on, which is kind of the, the generation of, of more and, and needing to produce more and more to get the same level of feeling. Um, and you just kind of feel like you're in the same spot uh, going faster and faster. And I think you address that in this piece. And I'd like to touch on that briefly. I'll point people to that article in the, in the show notes. But I'd love to hear you describe your motivation for this and, and what, what brought you to this idea. Why is it so important? Yeah, so they're, they're both um, <clears throat> personal and professional reasons for this. Um, the personal one, which is also in part professional, just my own observations of my own career. And so going that back, as I mentioned earlier, to the early 1980s, and keeping my, so at the time, this is early, P, the first PCs are coming out, and the, the first PCs had one mega of storage, right? So they were real, and that was incredible, right? So at the time, that was it. And then one were patient enough to wait a year or two, there'd be two mega. And then there was like five mega, 10 mega. So people were buying new computers and getting this increased storage. But along with that, technology was the technology and be able to execute studies, especially the writing part, uh, much quicker. I recall this vividly early in my career. Someone who was very productive would publish two to three articles a year as a typically as a sole author or as a co-author. And in order to put these studies together and actually beyond the execution of the, these studies, do the analyses, plot the figures, type the manuscript. There were no PDFs, nothing like that. We use a, some kind of precursor of word. I can't remember what, what was used at the time. It was very labor intensive. So it took much more effort to actually produce an article. In fact, when we would do a figure, you would take a ruler and draw the axes. And in order to do points, there would be stencils. You buy these stencil sets with crosses, stars, circles, different colors, and so forth. And you rub them off in the places on your graph where they should be, and then take a special ruler that could be bent. So it was a rubber ruler with a metal rod that was bendable inside, and you would bend it and draw your curve, right? So all this was very tedious, but we didn't know anything different. So that's just the way things were, and everyone happily accepted that. But it meant, in part, that some, someone who would be productive was only putting out a couple articles a year. And I think it's through really a ratcheting up process. And I don't, the way I'm saying this sounds negative. I'm really agnostic about this, in fact, and totally respect those who think the more the merrier 
And science, kind of like art, is something about uh, curiosity and passion and creating useful intellectual experiences and information. And who can argue against that? I'm not arguing against that. But this ratcheting up process of gradually with technology, but also the the culture, and in particular what's been referred to as the evaluation culture, has pushed us without us even seeing. This is kind of the important thing. The ratcheting up is very slow. Unless you kind of look back, if one can look back on a long enough career and think back 5, 10, 15, 20 years or more, hey, you know, beyond this idea of the good old days, right? Not calling this the good old days because there are lots of challenges there too. But what was easier is that we had less to cope with in terms cope cope with, that is experience in terms of new research. So the way I would experience new research and still do, but I would say less so just because there's just too much. I have to really think carefully about what I want to read and what I, how I want to search for and so forth. Um, what we would do in the 80s, 90s, and I would say into the knots, early knots, was go into a library, um, look at the latest issues of the journals that we were interested in. So it was on a very, very much a, a journal basis or an author basis. We'd look for authors we were interested in and peruse these issues, look in some detail, at least titles and abstracts, and then decide what we were going to read. And the way we would do it until about 20 years ago is we would either photocopy it or we would send a postcard to the author and ask for a reprint. And so that, that was really the currency. One of the main currencies of research was having a stack of these postcards with your name on it and address, and you would write the address of the, the author and write then the journal name and the author's publication with the page numbers, mail, mail this postcard out, and hopefully a couple of weeks later, a month later, get the reprint and you put that into your reprint collection. So in my office back at the university, I have two or 3000 of these reprints, which I never look at anymore because everything is consultable as PDFs or most everything. What I want to point out is in this ratcheting and leading to taking stock. And at different times in my career, I've had this same kind of reflection and that is, when I think about their paper, I see a paper I want to read, and I say, I just don't have the time to do this because I have all these other responsibilities. I'm, and first and foremost, I'm a researcher producing research, and I need time to do that. But in order to do that, if you think about it and be scholarly about it, you would want to know what others have done that have led up to the research you're doing. And those who have produced results that merit being read and potentially cited in your own articles in either supporting a claim that's made in the paper or giving credit to others for a discovery or for a particularly well-worked-out analysis or experiments or model or whatever, that there's this feedback and this genealogy of the intellect in science that can be traced back. So getting back to the productivity problem, 
which, which I'm calling a problem. When I write an article nowadays, I'm typically citing anywhere from 50 to 200, perhaps 300 articles. When I go back to my earliest articles, I was citing 10 to 50 articles, but the breadth of the, the science was equivalent. And as we go back and look at older and older articles, so we go back into the early 1900s, some articles cited nothing. Others would cite one, two, three papers where you can hypothesize because there was actually not that much out there or that finding those papers was very laborious. I think a key turning point for me was in writing this latest blog post entitled, Are We Publishing Too Many Scientific Articles? is looking back at my PhD thesis. And so I look, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I worked on interactions between pathogens, their hosts, and interactions with other parasites. So pathogen-parasite interactions, host-parasite interactions, and so forth. And I kept a card file of every publication. I was very, very thorough about this during my, my PhD and put a lot of effort into scouring, scouring the literature and finding everything imaginable that was related to my thesis. So my thesis became, I can't remember, perhaps eight or 10 scientific articles. And in total, in total in my PhD, which I believe is maybe two or 300 pages long, there are 400 citations. So nowadays, I'm confident that that would be at least 10 times that if I was as thorough and perhaps perhaps as much as 100 times that. The way I lead into this blog post is a recent paper, actually this year, quantifying the growth of scientific articles and robustly showing between disciplines that it's roughly four to five percent per year. So the important thing there is that it's growth. And that is that if you have 100 articles this year, 5% growth gives more articles next year than 5% the year after. So in fact, the growth is constant, but the number goes up exponentially. You know, this is what I call the problem. What this leads to is the problem of a lot of papers being unsighted or very rarely cited, not for reasons of what is in the paper. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Some papers just are uninteresting to the community and perhaps not well conducted, but many which fall through the cracks. And what I cite, I don't put this in my blog, but it is in the book that I wrote on publishing uh, and writing papers. And that is, if you see a publication, you're writing a paper, you see a publication that fits in really well with your introduction to your paper, you start to read it, and then you look, you know, because the information is there. It's published three years ago, and it has never been cited. And you think, oh, no, there's something wrong here. Why hasn't this been cited? So are you going to read this in, in excruciating detail, to put it in an extreme way, to figure out what might be wrong with that paper and why this has not gotten the notice of scientists? But the problem here is that it's um, self-reinforcing prophecy. So if a paper, by any chance, doesn't get cited in its first six months to year, one year, then those reading the paper might be a bit nervous about citing it. And those people who are not citing it by not citing it are, are just snowballing 
this problem of the paper not emerging. So this is really kind of one of the center points of, of my blog post. And that is that there's this, what we call can call disposable science. And that is we publish a paper that's metaphorically like giving birth to a, a life, you know, to life. We put a lot of effort into it, love into the paper. We think that we've done something special and interesting and important, but we can never predict really what will become of that paper. Um, and so I'm, I'm not thinking about the, you know, pushing this to say it's a tragedy for those authors who produce papers who are not cited, but rather for science, that science is not equipped to enable us to really read what we need, need to read just because there's so much of it, not only so much of it coming out, but all of it from the past is still there. So it's not all, you know, I usually refer to this as silent, silent, science accumulates and is cumulative. So the numbers are not only increasing exponentially, but the foundation of science is increasing hyper exponentially. You create such a, a rich landscape for this discussion, and you're very clear that this is intentional to create a, a richer discussion around this. And so yes. I encourage listeners to, to go read the post, use it as a, a, a place, an arena for a richer discourse about these ideas, because it's very important and there are conversations that we need to have. Yes. Uh, thank you for that, Michael. And, and, and I'm cognizant of the time here, and I want to be respectful of your busy schedule. And just, I think this is a good time to transition to the final portion of the show, uh, which is a lightning round, which are four quick question and answers that we typically put at the end of the show to highlight a few things, kind of tie the episode together. Uh, so, Michael, are you ready for the lightning round? I am. Okay. So, the first question is What is one book that you feel has impacted you unlike anyone else? Is there a book that you have a special relationship to? The most recent book that really turned me on was Exercised by Daniel Lieberman. Beautifully written. It answers lots of questions about science and applications of exercise. Great book. Thank you. The second question, what passion outside of your own field has most importantly helped set your trajectory? Uh, listening to music. Do you play? I do. Any uh, More than one instrument or what do you play predominantly? I play about half an instrument. <laughs> <laughs> I, I play bass guitar. I'm a learner and I um, took up bass in 2018 and um, decided to be self-taught having played electric guitar for a number of years and cannot wait to take in-person lessons. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I hope you get to those in-person lessons soon. Yes. Number three, what is your latest and most consuming passion? What's, what's making your heart sing at this moment? Writing blogs. Very cool. And I will, of course, point people to your, to your blog page and, uh, and encourage people to, to enjoy those. The final question, what is one thing that you have truly and fully screwed up? Ooh. Hmm. Getting involved in some collaborations which uh, turn not to pan out and wasting a lot of time and not really being able to tell that some of the signs of this would have uh, been there from the start. So that really relates to my first blog post, which is called The, the Drop. 
So the drop does not mention any names, but I've been involved. So I really, once I get involved in something, I try to go through it through through the end to the end with it. And even in a sinking ship, we'll do that. But some of my colleagues tend to jump ship way before things are sinking. And so this is this has also become a problem. That's it's discussed in some detail in, in this blog post called called the drop. It's an interesting dynamic made more important now when possibilities seem wider and uh, connections can be more global and, and more widespread. So I, that's an important topic. Thank you. Yep. Michael, entomologist, epidemiologist, dynamic systems engineer, computer scientist. I could throw many more definitions in there, but thank you for your work in all of these different areas of science. And especially thank you for your work in, in tying them together and giving us kind of a new lens on each of them and this, this innovative way for scientific disciplines. It's been a pleasure talking with you and I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Pleasure for me as well.